You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Good morning. Okay, two questions to start our day. One has nothing to do with the message. The second one does. First thing, it snowed today. How many were happy about that? Put your hand up. Yep, we want to see who we can't trust. Uh, who are, is that? You know, if we can get, if that, hey, listen, what if I said today, that's all the snow we're going to get this year? Yeah, wouldn't that be great? But see, I'm not going to say that because I know what happens to prophets if they get it wrong. So I'm not saying that. That's not on the record. Here's the second question. And uh, it's rhetorical. You don't need to respond because I think I already know your answer. Um, Does it feel like, or is it just me, that the world is a little off course these days? You know, I don't think we need to, uh, I don't think I need to take a poll on that. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your ideology might be. I think we'd all agree. The world seems a little off course these days. Like, I I think when you see a a nuclear war possibly looming with North Korea, when you see political saber-rattling happening over social media, I mean, world leaders tweeting to one another, (laughs) like, what's going on? You get left-wing ideology and right-wing ideology. And friends, we can have people in this room that lean both ways all over the place. But I've never seen it so polarized, so, so extremely in conflict with each other. It's gone to a rate that, that I've not seen in my lifetime anyways. We live in a world, too, that's become morally fluid. I mean, what was once wrong is now right. What was once right is, is now wrong. Uh, we live in a world that's, uh, uh, that at the, on the job front, it's economically fluid. I mean, people are trying to figure out what's next. And even on the job front, it's job fluid. People have trained their lives for a job that really, overnight it seems, no longer exists. And all of a sudden, there are new jobs on the landscape. And kids are in school and university, and some of them are at college. I don't know if the strike is over, though, yet. Uh, and they're preparing for jobs that may not even exist two years from now. I mean, it's really disconcerting. There's gender fluidity. Things have changed so much in our world. Pastor Matt was right when he talked about that. Things are changing so much in our world, it can leave us wondering. And I think if you're a person of faith, you'd be right to wonder. In moments like that, you're thinking, the world seems so off course. Where is God in all of this? What's he doing? What's he up to? And we're going to be exploring for the next five weeks, Pastor Keith and I are going to be exploring... How does God respond to a world that's off course? And how in turn does he partner with us in this world that's off course to respond to the things around us? How do we do that? Well, today we're going to look at one of the ancient texts, the book of Esther, in fact. We're going to be looking there and we're going to discover a truth there that Christians have known throughout the centuries and have been comforted by. And this is the truth. And if I was going to give it to you in a capsule, it would be this. The truth is this. When this world seems off course, God already has his partners in place to respond. He already has his partners in place to respond. Let me give you a little background on the book of Esther. Uh, Many of us have read it at a Sunday school level. When you get into the book of Esther, it's a little more disturbing. The Sunday school level is much nicer. But we're going to look at it at a little bit more of the realistic level of what it says in this book. 
This book was written about 100 years after the children of Israel had been carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians have been succeeded by a great empire called the Persians. The entire story takes place in a city called Susa. It's in modern-day Iran, and in that city, Susa, it's the capital city of the greatest empire of that day and age, the Persian Empire. So that's the context. There are four major characters. I'm not going to talk about them all today, but let me give them to you so you understand the story. This is brand new to you. It's a story. It's about, guess who the principal character is? It's called the book of Esther. Go figure. It's about Esther. We know this about Esther early on. We know that she's a beautiful young woman. We know this about her. We know that Esther is a Jewish woman. We also know that she's an orphan. How do we know that? Well, in the, in the book, it tells us she was raised by her uncle Mordecai, who's another important character in the scripture. So Mordecai raises Esther. They're two principal characters. There's a third one, and he goes from the beginning of the book to the end, and he's the king of Persia, and his name is King Xerxes. Now, he's an interesting character. You'll see he drinks a lot. He's a, he, he's a man who has low, uh, 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 he's a pushover. Uh, he can be dragged into things and out of things by appealing to his ego. This man has a big ego. And the last man, Pastor Keith is going to talk about next week. His name is Haman. What I want you to know about this in the story, because we're going to be focusing on the first two chapters of Esther. Haman is an evil man. He's of Canaanite descent. And he has been risen to the number two power position in the Persian Empire, right under King Xerxes. He has it out for the Jewish people. In fact, the whole book of Esther is about his incredible, diabolical plan to exterminate the Jews. That is his goal. That is his intent. He's evil in it. He's a powerful man. He has an ego that is a crazy ego. But you'll learn more about him next week. These are the principal characters in Esther. Now, the cool part about this book, when you read it, if you've ever sat down and read it, you know this. It's it's different because in the entire book of Esther, God is never mentioned. Not once. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And on the surface, you can think like, why? Like, did the author forget? Did they get so excited about the story and all the things that were going on that they forgot to include God? But the author is using a literary device. It's a device that he excludes any mention of God because he wants his readers to read and see God in all of the coincidences that happen in the scripture. He's training his readers. He's training them to see God's activity even when they can't see it. Now, this is a truth that runs throughout the whole book of Esther. I'd love you to say this truth out loud with me and with some conviction too because it's 11.15 a.m. You guys are up and at them. We've had a great time of worship and prayer. You're ready to go. This is the truth that runs through the whole book of Esther. Let's say it aloud together. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean you should not believe it. Now, that flies in the face of most of our conventional wisdom, doesn't it? And actually, it serves you well. You know, often we say in life, I'll see it when I, or no, I'll believe it. Yeah. Gotcha, right? <laughs> I didn't mess it up. That was on purpose, right? Yeah, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. 
And normally what happens in life is we look for trustworthy sources. If you find a trustworthy person when they say something, you believe it, right? You look for trustworthy sources. That's what I think makes this world that we're living in right now feel so discombobulating. Because all of a sudden, some of our sources we would go to for truth, now we have fake news. Now we have alternative facts. You have news agencies that used to specialize in trying to be neutral that are openly leaning one ideology way or another. And so sometimes if you're like me, your, your Twitter feed or the news you're watching, you're wondering, I wonder if that's real. I wonder if that's real. Because we're looking for something that's trustworthy. What can we trust? Who's telling us the truth, right? And in a world that seems off course, more than ever, we're looking for trustworthy sources. Now, the fact is, friends, this is all about faith. Because faith is, you know, uh, believing or trusting in something that maybe you haven't seen yet, but you know the source. I, I think of it this way. Every one of us in this room, even if you don't consider yourself a person of faith, you are. Every human being that wakes up every morning puts faith in something. Some system, some ideology. Look, I, let me prove it to you. I have seen the moon. I've never seen Jupiter, but I believe it's there. I believe there's a solar system. Do you? I've never visited Jupiter. They tell me Pluto's no longer a planet. Poor Pluto. <laughs> I don't know if it's really there. Now, I believe it's there. Why? Because uh, scientists and technology reveals it to me, and I put a level of faith and trust that they're giving me the truth, and I believe it's there. So, for the record, I do believe in the solar system. Nobody go out in some conspiracy theory. But, but, you know, we put trust in things all the time, but we are raised to be suspicious, aren't we? We're raised to be suspicious of strangers. Not stranger things, but strangers. Somebody got that. Somebody got that. Uh, we're raised to believe that if a business deal is too good to be true, it's likely too good to be true, right? You know, we're raised to be suspicious when it comes to used cars, or as they're called, certified pre-owned cars, or I like the latest thing they're called. They're right now called, they're, they're called reprocessed cars. <laughs> we're lear we learn to be suspicious of some of the text messages we receive, and for good reason. I received a text message from the, from the Bank of Montreal saying that my account had become in jeopardy. Can I send my password? I'm not a client of the Bank of Montreal, so I was like, sure, here, <laughs> you know, like, go ahead and knock yourself out. Amazon emails me on occasion saying, uh, we need to update our records. Can you send your password? You know, it pays to be suspicious at times, doesn't it? When a, good, when a deal is good, too good to be true, it likely is. Now, if my brother, though, Malcolm, you don't know him, but I know him. If he called me and says, I have a deal, and it sounds too good to be true, do you know what? I believe him. Because I've known Malcolm for years. Malcolm is the type of man, his yay is yay, his nay is nay. If he says it, I believe it. The book of Esther is all about, in a world that seems to be off course, where are you going to place your trust? 
What are you going to be looking to in a world that seems off course? Are you going to be the victims of the chaotic world? Or are you going to be partners of God in this world? So here's how it opens up. Let me give you a summary of the first two chapters of Esther. It starts with a party. Starts with a party that lasts 180 days straight. And at the end of the party, King Xerxes, the guy that was there, he, King Xerxes is drunk. Now, if you had party for 180 days, you might be too. I don't know. But for 180 days, he, he is drunk and he calls on his queen. Her name is Vashti. And at the end of this party, he says, come in and display your beauty to all of my guests. And she refuses to. And because she's refused, she refuses to, in a drunken rage, he removes her as queen. And in chapter 2, he, ha- he, he has a search for a new queen. It's a beauty pageant of sorts. And he has people come, girls come, and they would prepare themselves for one year. They would go through strict diets and strict training and beauty treatments for one year. And in the end, this little Jewish woman named Esther wins the beauty prize. He is so obsessed with her, he makes her queen. At the back end of chapter 2, Esther's uncle, his name is Mordecai, overhears at the gate two people plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai tells Esther, because Esther's now queen. Esther goes to King Xerxes, says, my uncle Mordecai has uncovered a plot to assassinate you. They investigate it. They find out it's true. And these two uh, a rebellion, uh, people leading a rebellion are executed. The king decides, I'm going to honor Mordecai for what he's done. But he forgets to. Because he's a king. It's all about him. And after that, that, after that event happens, something fun happens. Whatever glittery happens and his attention is diverted. So he forgets to honor Mordecai. Later on, you see in the book of Esther, chapter 4, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's bored. And what does a king who's full of himself do when he's bored? Well, he asks to read about himself. He brings the books that tell about his life and all the great things he's done. And that's his entertainment. Let me read about my greatness. So he's going through and he reads about how Mordecai prevented him being assassinated. And in that moment... He remembers, I forgot to honor Mordecai. And he honors him. This is the context. These are the first two chapters. This is what's going on. Let's unpack it. Mordecai and Esther are Jews. They're in a minority culture, a minority culture that is subjugated by a dominant culture, the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was violent, the Persian Empire was morally fluid. It was filled with unrestrained luxuries. There was injustices in that, in, that, in that culture. And if you're a minority culture in a dominant culture, you can start to feel the squeeze of that culture. You can feel the anxiety with conflicting values. The Persian Empire's values were very different than the Jewish values. Very different. You can start to feel that you're being ignored that your voice doesn't even matter in that culture, that nobody's listening. And so if you're, you could be tempted to yell even louder, sometimes not even be like yourself. 
Not even be like your Jewish roots, yelling louder to be heard because you're such a small part of a more dominant culture. Does that remind you a little bit of what's going on in this world today? How do you, trans, how do you move through those difficult days? What do you, how do you become God's partner in this? Well, there's three things that pop out of these first two chapters. Here's the first one. The first one is this. God's partners, anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, God's partners understand God is at work even when it appears as if he's not. God is at work even when it appears that he's not. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean you shouldn't believe it. See, in chapter one, King Xerxes throws this party, 180 days. It's a, and in a drunken act, he invites his wife Vashti because he's showing off. He wants to display her beauty before all these drunken men. She says no. And she stood up to him. But in a male-dominated culture, that cost her her crown. And she was disposed of. Yeah, I'd love to think this world is different right now. But man, when I, I see what's happening in Hollywood, it shouldn't come as any surprise. But it's amazing when people have power and what they do to use and abuse others underneath their power. It was no different then. So in this credible act of courage, means she's disposed as queen. Esther uh, wins this beauty pageant. He sent out his commissioners, representatives of the kings, to the extents of his kingdom, and they brought back, in verse 8, it says they took the young women. It was against their will. They were taken. Here's what would happen. If you were one, they estimate a thousand young women were probably brought to this beauty pageant. A thousand of them. And they were took, took from their families. Here's the thing that would happen when they were taken. They would never go back. One of three things would happen. One, someone's going to win and become queen. But that's one out of a thousand. The other two will become part of his harem. There for his sexual pleasure. The ones that don't appeal to him would live their day in isolation because they belong to the king. They're his property. And they would live and die in isolation. Horrible horrific circumstances. That's the kingdom. That's the culture Esther is in. And somehow Esther, through the beauty treatments and through that moment, she is favored above them all and she's married and she becomes the queen of Persia. This orphan Jewish girl raised by her uncle becomes the queen of the greatest empire known in, the, in that age and that time. But here, what's the deal with Esther? Because God is never mentioned. You know what else is not mentioned in that book? There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of prophecy. No mention of God. There's, there's no mention or hint or even indication of, to, of a reference to the Bible or the Holy Scriptures. It's never mentioned in this book. See, there's a great point being made by the author here. As I mentioned, the story is the Jews are in great trouble. They're going to be, there's going to be an attempt to exterminate them, destroy them, and then take their plunder. Every time, though, in the past, when you read the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, when you read the Bible, every time God's people are under threat of destruction, God shows up in power. It's always extraordinary. Extraordinary things happen. Ten plagues. A pillar of fire, a Red Sea divides. If you remember the Exodus, when the extermination was facing God's people, God showed up in an undeniable and extraordinary way. It was always undeniable 
Everybody knew this is supernatural, unreal, power, God, extraordinary ways. Not Nestor. Not a vision, not a dream, not a miracle. He seems completely absent and completely silent. Have you ever been there? You've ever been in something? Maybe it's your world today that seems out of control. Have you ever been in a place where you wonder, where is God? I mean, where's God in all of this? Where's God in all of this? Have you ever been in a place where you wish, you prayed, you begged for God to show up in an undeniable way? In a way that no one around you would be able to deny that God is at work here. But in the story of Esther, you only see God's work when you read the entire story. As you see this string of coincidences that happen, if they had not happened or if they had happened at a different time, all of God's people would have been wiped out. See, it starts at the very beginning of the book. King Xerxes gets drunk. Now, nobody reads that and goes, wow, God's at work. But if he doesn't get drunk, he doesn't call his queen Vashti to come. And if he doesn't call, get drunk and he doesn't call his queen Vashti to come, she doesn't say no. And then she doesn't get disposed as queen. And if she's still queen, all of the Jewish people are dead. Esther has to be queen. Esther has to be queen. Then Mordecai just coincidentally happens to overhear the plot assassination attempt against Xerxes. And if he had not overheard that, he would not be honored, which was key to saving the Jewish people. But if you know, remember, the king forgot, coincidentally just happened to forget to honor Mordecai. And if you read this story, you realize the timing matters. If he had honored Mordecai when it originally happened, all the Jewish people would be exterminated. Everything happens in order, but they're such ordinary things. They seem insignificant on the surface. So ordinary that in isolation, they seem like they don't even matter. But when you put them together, you begin to see that God specializes at working through ordinary circumstances. The book of Esther is trying to warn us against thinking God is absent. The book of Esther is reminding us just because you can't see it doesn't mean you shouldn't believe it. See, God made a promise to his people in Genesis chapter 12. He came to Abraham and he said this, through your family, Abraham, I'm going to heal the world. And every time there's a threat against his promise to use his family to heal the world, God shows up. God defends his people. God keeps his promises. Friends, they aren't coincidences. They are God working through ordinary things. Think about your life. I thought this week, I was thinking about how did I ever become the lead pastor of Agent Corp Pentecostal Church? And some of you have wondered that too. <laughs> you know what I thought? I thought when I was 18 years old, I was never going to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a pastor. If you had asked me to order my, my path in life, I don't think it would have even showed up on the list. It wasn't even in my mind. I was accepted at a different university. I had a different path in mind. And it was a Sunday night service in St. John, New Brunswick, where I can say that I felt a calling to be a pastor. And then, then just by coincidence, my roommate at Bible college was a, man, a guy named Brian Robson. He attended this church. 
And coincidentally, I began to come home on weekends with Brian, and I sat up in the balcony right there, and I listened to Stuart Mulligan speak, which was always a treat. And I began to really like this church at 18 and 19 years old, coincidentally. And then I got, after I graduated from Bible college, I became a youth pastor. And then what happened is I got let go. And it hurt. And you're laughing. <laughs> but if I hadn't been let go, I would have never moved back to Halifax to start a church at age 23 from scratch and lead all these people to Christ. And if I hadn't been let go from there, and gone to Halifax and planted that church, I would never have been approached by a theological institution that asked me to write a series of articles on church planting. And you know, you ever say yes to something and then the deadline comes close and you're kicking yourself, you're saying, why did I say yes to that? Well, I had had day surgery and this was due that very day. And I went to the office with pain medication and I finished this article and sent it off because I said I would and I went home. But if I had not been let go in Toronto and gone to Halifax and planted that church and been asked then by an institution to write this series of articles on church planning, Keith Smith would have never read it. I didn't know Keith Smith. And Keith Smith was the senior pastor of this church. And he read this article and he thought, I think this is the type of guy that could start new campuses in this church. And if I hadn't done that, he wouldn't have called. And if he wouldn't have called, I wouldn't have moved my family across the country to Toronto and been a part of starting these campuses in this church, and we have an update for you in a couple of weeks about the, the campuses, but I wouldn't have been a part of starting those campuses in this church. And if I hadn't done that, a church in Montreal wouldn't have called me and said, would you come and be our lead pastor? And if I hadn't moved my family a province over to learn French, you're welcome, boys. <laughs> Uh, if I hadn't done that, I would never have been prepared to lead this large congregation. And yet, if I hadn't been visiting this church in May of two or three years ago, because I was here to celebrate a homegoing of my friend Charles Yates and to give his eulogy at that, and Pastor Smith was doing the service, and by chance, in a conversation on the side, it was not planned or anything, I mentioned that we were feeling a release in Montreal and that another church had talked to us. And Pastor Smith said, you know, we should talk sometime. <laughs> Friends, how do I know that I've been called to be the lead pastor of this church right now? Because I couldn't make that up. That is unmanufacturable. I could never manufacture those coincidences that had to happen when they happened, the way they happened, in order for me to be here. At 18, 19, I never saw it. At age 20, uh, I never saw it. When I came to this church, I was 30 years old the first time round. I never saw it. I never anticipated ever coming back here. But God works through ordinary, seemingly insignificant moments. And it's only as you engineer it backwards that you can see God's hand at work. Friends, here's the thing though. Often in life, with all of us, when we, we can see God work through the extraordinary things, that's no problem. Anyone can see that. We think when God's working through ordinary things, we think he's absent. We think he's not there. Or at worst, we think he's not listening. But think of your life. 
What if that person hadn't called? You know, what if that hadn't happened? You would never have become what? See, here's the thing, friends. In a world that seems off course, his partners need to become experts at seeing him working through the ordinary things. Seemingly insignificant moments that God is using to direct your life because he has planned something much better. Seeming ordinary moments that in a world that seems in chaos, God is a God of order. That somehow he's ordering the steps of those who love him. He's ordering the steps. He's prepared in advance good works for you to do in Christ Jesus. He is partnering with us, friends. Friends, because here's the truth. If you've heard nothing else, and if you're going through rough times, hear this. God's absence is never true. His silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. He is working for your salvation. He is working to keep his promises. He is working out those promises, even when it looks like he's not working. See, his partners understand that. If you want to navigate a world that seems out of control, seems off course, you need to remember this. Even when it appears God's not at work, he's working. You might sleep at night, he's not sleeping. You might turn off the clock, punch the clock and, and go home and recreate. He's not. He's working. He's working, keeping his promises. He's working towards his will. One day when he will return to this earth and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, he is working out his purposes and his partners have to have eyes of faith to understand that God is at work even when you can't see him at work. Here's the second truth. God has partners that understand that, but God has partners that understand what's inside us always takes precedent over what surrounds us. Friends, Esther shows us this on full display, and this is really important truth. What's inside you is always more important than what surrounds you. Now, everything in our culture is alarmist. It wants you to keep thinking that everything around it is far more important than what's going on inside you. And this Persian empire and the world that Esther lives in is no different. Esther lived in a world that valued the externals. You know, at the banquet, why it took 180 days for the party to go on is because the purpose of that party was he gathered all his male associates so he could display his power and his riches. So it was a display every day, new things being ushered behind, but before the people so that they could see how rich and wealthy and important and powerful he is. In chapter two, it's a beauty pageant. Everything's about externals. Everything's about the things that surround us. It's the external side of our lives. It's the world we live in, and it will always try to value it more than the internal. See, in the Persian culture, Listen to this. In the Persian culture, men were valued through, by their money and their power. And women were valued for their beauty. Aren't you glad our world is different now? Again, that was a joke, but... I mean, it's sad to say the world hasn't changed much. The world has not changed much. The world is just like King Xerxes, just like him. The world says external surfaces matter more than your character. The color of your skin matters more than the content of your character. The world will say these things over and over, that what you have matters more than what you are. 
The world, just like King Xerxes says to us, unless you have these credentials, unless you possess this type of beauty, unless you have this level of success, unless you have this level of worth, you're worthless. I mean, the world does that. That's the culture and world we live in. The world says it's somewhat differently to each of us. The world puts pressure on us. The world will put pressure on men, and it looks very different in the way than it puts pressure on women, but both are pressured. The world puts pressure on races differently. The world will put uh, pressure on certain races this way and other races this way. The world will put pressure on people of different class distinctions differently. The world is always putting pressure. Here's what it does. It puts you on a stage in a pageant and it says perform and then it judges you. That's why in life we often feel like we can never measure up. You know what it's like, friends. Because I'm looking at people I know that have achieved many things in this life. And sometimes you make those levels of achievement and you get to that, that apex and you realize, is this it? Because that's what the world offers us. Different pressures, perform, judge. So friends, the story of Esther reminds me over and over, have you bought into the world system? Oh, because I have at times, haven't I? Have you valued people more for what they have than who they are or more for how they look than who they are? Have you valued people? Have you taken a career because of the status it gets you, but you hate it? But you bought, that's how powerful the world, that's how powerful the culture is. It can make you take something that you hate, but because it makes you look important, you'll do it. It's amazing what we'll do for the world and the culture. Now, before you beat yourself up, one of the things I love about the Bible is it's so honest. In those first two chapters of Esther, Esther doesn't really look that good. In the first two Esther, chapters of Esther, Vashti, she seems like the hero. The man says, come. She says, no. All the women said, amen. She's defined against this display of external beauty that's just being used to, to entertain those around and to make him seem like the man. But Esther says yes to every man. Mordecai, it says in the Bible, told her what to do and she did everything that Mordecai said. Haggai is the man that ran the harem. He's the guy who was in charge of all the beauty treatments and the diets. And it says that Esther did more than any of the other women. King Xerxes, she becomes his wife. She doesn't stand up to him. It seems like she, this is why Esther's a disturbing book. In Sunday school, it's a fun book. It's a beautiful woman. She's the hero in the end. It's amazing. But in real life, feminists struggle with Esther in these first two chapters. But so do conservatives. Conservatives judge her because she seems to give in to the culture. Feminists judge her because she seems to play the game. Friends, here's the beautiful thing about Esther. We know this in the end. She's a brave heart. She is a ferocious leader in the end. And her beauty is no longer about the external beauty in the end. It's what's happened inside of her. Because the story of Esther and through the story of Esther, all the pressures that she would have felt, all the pushing and pulling for her attention, all of the moments that she had to make a decision, all of those pressures produced something beautiful in the end. And here's the story of Esther. God worked with her. God was patient with her. God stayed with her. God grows her 
in and through those difficult circumstances. And this is why it's so important to us today. It doesn't matter how much you've screwed up. It doesn't matter how much you've capitulated to the culture and given in. Because, friends, if we're to be honest, we're all, we all have one foot in the culture. In many ways, in the ways we do investments, in the ways we run our lives, in the way we run our calendar and our money, we show our values by where we park ourselves. We, we, we all capitulate a little bit to the culture. See, here's the hope, though. So for Esther, she was not the perfect model in those first couple of chapters. But because of grace, God never gives up on her. Grace, unsurpassable grace. And through her life, great things happen. Often, friends, when people read the Bible, they read it wrong. They read, and I get it. I love, you know, one of the things I told you I love about the Bible is when you read it, you read about all these imperfect people. Don't you love that? Gives me hope. You know, it's like I've said to you many times here, right? All the perfect people left a long time ago. It's just you and me now. <laughs> you know, I love it because besides Jesus, there's this unsanitized record of people who try through their own humanity to honor God. But if somebody looks in and sees their lives, they're not exemplary moral lives all the time. And the worst, you know, sorry guys, the worst are the guys in the text. It, it gets pretty bad. One of my favorite characters is David. But David, if he could mess things up morally, David did it. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how conflicted it is. But some people wrongly think the message of the Bible is God bless us, and saves those who live morally exemplary lives. That is not the message of the Bible. You have not read it. The message of the Bible is God continually and persistently gives grace to people who don't deserve it. Sometimes who don't even ask for it when you read the Bible. And sometimes, even when they get it, they don't fully appreciate it. Incredible. God's grace that makes up the difference. Now, that doesn't let us off the hook because the prophet Samuel said really well and eloquently in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he said this, man looks on the outward appearance, all the externals, the things that surround us, but God looks on the heart. In a world that seems out of control, pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on inside you. The world will pull you through one of two ways. If you watch enough news and follow enough media feeds, it's almost like watching a car wreck on the 401. <laughs> Everybody stops to take a look, don't they? They can't look away. Now, come on. I know we complain about everybody else, but you've probably been that person, right? It's almost a little disappointing when it's just a cut flat tire, right? You don't want anyone hurt, but you'd like to see something a little more spectacular. What is that in us, friends? And we see train wrecks of political leaders and, and celebrities, and we see world things happening, and it causes great anxiety to us, but we can't look away. Can't look away. And then there's another side to it. Sometimes the culture becomes so glittering, so glamorous, so beautiful, that we get fixated on what they see as successful, what they see as wonderful, what the culture says is important, we make important. I grew up in a small church in New Brunswick, and we sang a chorus, and we'll sing it later today. It's a simple chorus, such a simple chorus, but filled with such rich truth. It was simply this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Remember the rest of it? Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this, the things that surround us will grow strangely dim, less glittery, in the light of his glory and grace. See, there is something about this. His partners in a world that seems off course need to put, give precedent to what's going on inside of us over what's going on around us. Remember, friends, when it appears that God's not at work, he's at work. Remember, friends, what's happening inside of you is more important than what's happening around you. I invite our communion servers to prepare themselves to serve us this morning. We're going to do that shortly. Here's the last truth here. God's partners understand they're in place to accomplish his will. What, what, when the world seems off course, we need to always remember God has his partners in place. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're it. You're it. Esther, this Jewish orphan woman, she becomes a partner in God's place God has her as the queen of Persia. And if you read this story, you see how powerful it is to have good people in your life, like her uncle Mordecai, who assures her when she doubts herself. Have you ever been a place? I mean, you can put yourself in Esther's sandals. All of a sudden, it's, she's being called on to rescue God's people. And if you know the story, and Pastor Keith will get into it next week, it could cost her her life. And she's being called on to, I'm sure she thought, what do I do? How, how can I help? I'm not qualified. In the middle of it, Mordecai comes to her and says these words, who knows? I mean, maybe this is a coincidence, Esther. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. Who knows, friends? Maybe you're the coach of that basketball team for just a, such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe you're a teacher, an educator, and you have students that you influence for just a time as this. Who knows? Maybe you're a grandparent for just a time as this. Who knows? Maybe coincidentally, in your family, people look to you for just a time as this, to be a partner with God for what he wants to accomplish in a world that seems off course. Here's the truth, friends. Now, these are tough days. They're not easy to navigate. You know, uh, someone asked me, and I thought it was an interesting question, what are some of the hardest things facing the church right now? And it was the church in general, not aging court, but the church in general. You know, obviously, generational challenges there are. It's not easy to make five generations love each other and care for each other and journey together. That's not easy. That's a challenge every church is facing. The moral fluidity of our culture right now, the gender fluidity of our culture, you know, we, how do you respond in a loving way without coming down hard? How do, how do we do that? This is not easy. These are not easy times. There's a darkness where Christianity has been marginalized to an extent that to be saved in this culture is to be saved from being Christian, from absolute wrongs and rights. Now, we needn't despair because the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. We know that. We needn't despair about that. But I know these are challenging days. When, if you're feeling the pressure at work, 
you're feeling the pressure in raising children to love Jesus in this culture, and the temptation is to isolate them and hibernate, if you're feeling the pressure to, to navigate school and university and all of the challenges and the ideologies there, friends, listen to this. The same is true of Esther as of you and me. If we'll allow the pressure that we feel to refine us instead of define us, something beautiful can come from this. Esther's true beauty is on display at the end. When she goes and and on behalf of her people and confronts the king and the people of God are saved, you see not external beauty, you see internal beauty, which is self-sacrifice. She says these famous words, if I perish, I perish. Oh, Esther's grown up. Esther is courageously standing in the gap for his people. Esther is accomplishing God's will in his time. She had to give her life to that king. Jesus is the only king that gave his life for all of his Esthers. Everyone that's a partner in this world. He gave up his freedom and life so you could be free and you could find true life. It wasn't because we were lovely. It's because he came to make us lovely from the inside out. This is the story of Jesus. He was bound. He was sold for 30 pieces of shekels, uh, silver. He was pierced. And once you understand what he did for you, once you understand how loved you are, you too can have the courage to be in his, par- his partner in this world that might appear to be out of control. I'd like to invite the communion servers uh, to come now. And they're going to serve you the communion uh, if you're a guest here, I'd like you to hold on to the emblems. If you separate them, you'll notice there's a wafer in the bottom cup. And we're going to celebrate and remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us, the true king. And because of that, we can have courage in this world that seems out of control. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.